Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is the Financial Times podcast in association with City Index. Have you taken out your ISA yet? If not, we've got the best of the last-minute savings deals. Have you taken umbrage at the so-called granny tax? If so, we've got some good news for baby boomers. And have you taken to despairing over mortgage lender solicitors? If you have, we've got proof that you're not alone. All this to come in this week's FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent, and I'll be giving you the financial lowdown in downloadable form with my colleagues from FT Money, Elaine Moore. Hello. Tiny Poli. Hi. And our special studio guest, Mike Lenoff, Chief Strategist at Broker Bruin Dolphin. Hello. Let's start then with the money news. This week, it seems that consumers have been quicker to stock up on petrol than on tax-efficient investments, with providers of individual savings accounts expecting a last-minute rush before the tax year ends next Thursday. If you're looking for an easy-access cash ISA, there are finally some inflation-beating rates to be had, mainly because banks are competing more aggressively for customer deposits. But all the best easy-access rates now come with a catch – every top rate includes a bonus that will drop away after 12 months. Price comparison websites say that these bonuses, once derided as a marketing ploy, are now accepted by savers as a necessary inconvenience. What it means, however, is that next year you'll have to take out your new ISA and transfer your old one if you want to keep your rate competitive. Elaine, are these 12-month bonuses that we see everywhere now really worth the hassle? I think they are because they make a huge difference in the amount of uh, return that you can get on your money for cash ices. So in the last couple of weeks, some really interesting things have been happening with cash ices, really kind of unexpected things in a way. So what we've seen is within the easy access cash ices space, rates have suddenly shot up. That started with Santander, which released a rate of 3.3%, quickly followed by NatWest, which offered 3.5%, but only if you have £30,000 to invest. Then suddenly, Cheshire comes out, part of Nationwide, 3.5%, and then AA, part of Lloyd's, 3.5% as well. So this is easy access, money you can get your hands on. And if you think about the fact that for a five-year cash ISA, you get 4.5%, easy access, 3.5%. There's normally a much wider differential between a five-year and a 
easy access. Much it? wider. And you'd also expect to get much higher rates within the non-ISA space. But actually this year, cash ISAs are paying better than non-cash ISAs. So it's a very unusual market right now. I suppose significantly, this top rate on easy access, 3.5%, is ahead of the most recent consumer price inflation figure. Happily for savers, yeah, inflation's easing. So we know that um, this is for February. The price increase eased back down to 3.4% over the year. That's now from 3.6%. So what that means is that the rate at which the price of goods that you buy in the supermarket has gone up has come down a little bit. So that means if you put your money away into a cash ice, and your money will actually now keep pace with the increase in prices, which it hasn't done for a long time. No, it hasn't. This is the first time that you've been able to beat inflation on easy access for, for as long as I can remember. For quite a while, you've actually been losing money in real terms when you've put money away, and now you're actually going to be gaining it, so long as it's in a cash ISA, so you're not paying tax on the money that you save. For those who uh, don't like the hassle of having to keep trans- keeping a, well, keep record of when their bonus runs out and transferring their ISA to a, to, to a new rate, what are the best of the non-bonus easy access rates. So you can get Virgin money is paying 2.85%. That's that's pretty good. But I mean, that's still quite a way off if you think 3.5% to 2.85%. But what the banks do when they're thinking up their bonus rates, they actually factor in to the calculation the fact that quite a few people will leave their money in once the bonus disappears. So you have to remember that and don't be one of those people because if we take, say if we take the AA account paying 3.5%, that includes a 3% bonus. So that comes down to 0.5% after 12 months. And the reason that they can afford to pay so much is because they know that a few people will leave it in there. They'll earn less than the average savings rate. And so the bank will make some money. They're not stupid, are they? Um, but presumably they are offering uh, these these high bonuses, albeit for just 12 months, because of their funding requirements. Simple as that. They need to have depositor money at the moment, and they are fighting really hard for it, which is, which is good for savers, because as we know, the last few years, ever since the Bank of England took the interest rate down to 0.5% three years ago, savers have just had a horrible time of it. They've been losing money, as I said, in real terms. So the banks right now, they need to have some more money on the books. They need that money to come from uh, their depositors, their retail savers, because it's so expensive for them to get money on the wholesale markets. So they are ramping up their rates. But with the caveat that they ramp up the rates, the rates don't last very long because these are lost leaders for the banks. They don't make any money on these short-term ISAs. And just finally, do you think we'll get to a, a position whereby almost every rate has a short-term bonus and every bank is playing the fairly cynical game of hoping that we, the customer, forgets to transfer. It does seem to be now a sort of necessary evil. I don't think bonuses are seen in the same dim light that they were before. So uh, nearly every, like we said, every best rate has got a bonus. Nearly all of the um, banks now offer a rate that includes a bonus. If you're smart and if you keep moving your money, and I think most FT Money listeners and readers know how this game works and so they will put the date in their diary and move their money. Be easy to remember the date because it'll be at the end of the tax year when everyone Absolutely. takes out their ISA. Uh, Elaine, thank you very much indeed. And uh, for details of all the best ISA rates with and without bonuses, make sure you read Elaine's article in the money section of this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, how mortgage lenders' panel solicitors have been causing some FT readers nothing but stress and delays. First, though, baby boomers and the granny tax. 
What do George Osborne, Chris Giles and your podcast host have in common? Well, it seems that we have all annoyed a number of 60-somethings in the past few weeks. In his budget last week, the Chancellor's decision to freeze the age-related personal allowance for over-65s was instantly dubbed a granny tax, prompting such headlines as pensioners robbed and gran theft auto. Get it? In his analysis of the jinxed generation, Chris Giles, the FT's economics editor, claimed that those born in the post-war period enjoyed higher incomes than young people today. And in my column last week, I suggested that baby boomers were getting off lightly in tax terms compared with their middle-income earning children. Well, readers wrote in to point out that not every baby boomer has a big pension and that now is one of the worst times to buy an annuity. But what about their stock market and housing market gains over the last 30 or so years? Well, this week we've analysed Baby Boomer's investment performance and our conclusion is, in this generation game, didn't they do well? Mike, you've been studying stock market history for as long as I can remember. Those who were born in the post-war period, they have enjoyed long bull runs, haven't they? They have, um, <clears throat> particularly if they've been in a position to uh, take advantage of it all. I mean, we have seen, there's no doubt about it, we have seen a veritable bonanza in uh, asset values, certainly in the residential property market. We've also seen it in the stock market, even allowing for you know, periods where we have been through these very uh, bearish conditions where there has been a lot of wealth destruction. Still, over that period of time, if you assume that we're talking, say, about a 40-year working career for a baby boomer, the accumulation of wealth has really been, in principle, quite substantial. And let's have a look at uh, property. We'll come back to um, equities in a minute. But um, you make a good point about the fact that property values, certainly in the UK, have risen almost continually over over this period. There were a period in the in the sort of late eighties, early nineties, where there was a, a downturn. But at the same time, inflation has really helped people with mortgages wipe out their debt, hasn't it? It has. That cuts both ways. It's been very good if you've accumulated debt. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful way to erode that debt and release the liability. That, that's been very good. Um, but on the other hand, too, it's also helped real income growth. The lower it is, uh, you know, the, the, the better it is for you to consume all sorts of goods and services and, and also have some wherewithal left to save and continue to accumulate. So... You know, I think if you sum it all up, uh, the pluses and the minuses, I think for the period during which the baby boomers had a career, you're still left with the conclusion that it has been a jolly good period. You know, you've had four decades on balance where returns from investment have been very, very good. This assumes that baby boomers put their money into either a broader fund, perhaps you know, an index tracker, not that those were widely available back then, and they held on. But in your experience, certainly in my experience, uh, I, you know, I, I would have thought that a number of people would have sold at the wrong time. Uh, they, they, they would have panicked uh, when, when there was the crash in 87. They might have panicked again uh, after the, uh, the dot-com bubble burst. Do you think that uh, the behaviour has prevented baby boomers from actually cashing in on what the market's done? 
It's difficult to say. I mean, the you know the record does tend to show it's not easy to keep up with the market or beat the market or whatever. I think I think that's a separate point, though. I mean, I think how you play the opportunities is a different matter from the presentation of the opportunities. You know, there have been considerable opportunities over the past ten years. That's been less the case. You know, we've gone from uh, the turn of the millennium where we saw a considerable period of wealth destruction. We've saw the uh, some of that recoup in the bullish conditions that we had from about early 2003 to, to uh, the latter part of 2007, and then a lot of it lost again. So, you know, there's been a lot of upheaval, but I think you have to look at the basic principle of where the opportunities lay. Um, it's been very difficult to exploit these opportunities, but they have been very good opportunities, and I think you really can't do any more than just be presented with the opportunities and hope that through some careful judgment and uh, some help, you'll be able to exploit those opportunities. And I think, on balance, when you look at perhaps not your immediate direct savings, but if you look at pension plans, they've, they've not done too badly. You know, defined benefit schemes, which aren't any longer, um, they have done, done quite well over, over the period for which they were relevant. Um, so, you know, I do think that you can't get away from the conclusion that the, the presentation in asset markets has been very good over a period that also enjoyed considerable growth globally, you know. And just finally, um, for those people who didn't get generous defined benefit schemes, who were in defined contribution schemes, and so their investments, uh, the value of their pension fund was um, determined by how their investments performed, um, there is a case, though, for suggesting that the value destruction we've seen in recent years, combined with these low falling annuity rates that we've seen up until this week when they've suddenly tipped up a little bit, uh, has meant that people are not retiring on the fat pensions that we might think they are. Okay, uh, that is certainly true. And and if I can just pick up one of your previous points about you know the the baby boomer near retirement generation and the younger generation, there is a difficulty now with with making good your your savings and accumulating the kind of wealth that that uh, there had previously been an opportunity to accumulate. But the benefit is that for those who, the baby boomers who have accumulated, there, there's a transfer, there's a legacy transfer to those who may not be able to accumulate to the same extent. So, you know, our children will be able to inherit, if you like, a lot of that wealth. And that wealth will generate income. And it, it, it will compensate, say, for the income that uh, is deficient because of difficulties with putting together a decent pension fund. So not just one generation who stands to yeah, benefit. Yeah, it's intergenerational. That's what the accumulation of wealth is. And it's very important to... It's a very important point to make, I think. I shall make that point to my parents uh, <laughs> shortly after this. Mike, thank you very much uh, indeed. And if you'd like to see how well baby boomer uh, investors have done in both property and equity markets, uh, FT Money columnist Nick Louth has tried to work this out, and you can read his special feature in the money section of this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, the solicitors that mortgage lenders force you to use. In the case of one lender, homebuyers have complained about stress, delays and nearly missing out on a stamp duty exemption, all because their bank decided to reduce the number of solicitors that it would work with. The bank in question is the popular HSBC which in January said that mortgage customers would have to use one of only 43 law firms on its chosen panel or use their own solicitor and pay an extra fee of £192, including VAT, to cover HSBC's legal bills. 
But while the benefit of using a panel solicitor is not being charged if a sale falls through, getting a sale to go through in the first place has been described as a nightmare and a bad concept by customers who spoke to the FT. Tanya, you've been talking to a lot of these customers. Uh, What's the problem been? I think the main issue has been how much slower the process is going as a result of these um, new source listers or having to use a kind of third party solicitor. I mean, I must stress the people who I've been speaking to have been customers who have decided to go down the route of using their own solicitor, but then obviously paying that separate fee to um, use one of HSBC's panel solicitors who would then do the work on behalf of HSBC's um, conveyancing. So they've got two lots so of solicitors. So they've got two lots of solicitors. Right. And if, you, if anyone who's obviously gone through the house buying process themselves, you know that it's hard enough to kind of pin down your own solicitor and get answers and know where the process is at. I mean, if you then add another layer of that, another solicitor on top, um, a lot of people are just saying it's been impossible to get things actually agreed. Like you get one thing um, agreed by your own sister, then that has to go off to HSB sister, and then it takes um, another two, three weeks for them to write back and give a written consent. It just adds that another layer of administrative um, factor, I think. And I think, you know, a lot of people I've been speaking to are just saying that it's been really stressful actually not being able to communicate with these panel solicitors because actually what HSBC have confirmed to us today, that basically there's no accountability of the HSBC solicitor to the mortgage customer. They're there employed by HSBC, even though you're paying the costs for it. They actually can only speak to HSBC or your sister. So you yourself can't get answers from that panel solicitor. Which is a faintly ludicrous state of affairs. I mean, I understand the legal points. Mm. They haven't been, they've been instructed by yep. HSBC, yes. not by the, 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 the house buyer. Uh, therefore, they can only speak yes. to HSBC. HSBC. Mm-hmm. But having a solicitor who, who can't speak to you is not good. And uh, some of the readers you've spoken to have had the problem of, well, just not getting their phone calls answered. Yes, I mean, there's there's been various different issues at stake um, with some of the parent buyers that we speak to. Um, one was a first-time buyer. They um, took out their mortgage in January, so, you know, early enough to beat this, because obviously we've had this stamp duty holiday for first-time buyers of purchasing properties up to the value of um, £250,000, which ended as of last Saturday. So there has been this rush of first-time buyers trying to complete. Um, they've been continuously reassured by HSBC and their panel solicitors and their own solicitors that they take out the mortgage, um, you know, with enough time to be able to complete um, by last Saturday. I mean, they found that they their whole process was delayed because of this extra solicitor coming back like a week and a half before they were due to exchange, um, requesting more details, even though everyone was given their AOK by HSBC. And then um, because of these extra delays, they were then forced to exchange and complete on last Friday, the day before the deadline. Um, so they had to kind of basically exchange and complete all on a single day. And when they were given a deadline of 3pm from the seller solicitor, um, still at that point at 3pm, they couldn't get hold of Countrywide. The money, HBC said the money was transferred to Countrywide. Which, Countrywide is the uh, is the firm that, yes. that runs this panel. Yes, we should explain that. Yeah, yeah. they're the, basically the panel of managers of all the um, 43 um, law firms that are on the um, HSBC's panel. Um, they basically couldn't get hold of them. I think Countrywide even basically um, told people to stop ringing them. They weren't going to answer because they had obviously this influx. But I think that was the issue. There was this lack of communication um, going on. And obviously, it's a very stressful thing for, you know, you're obviously concerned that you're not about to complete, you're going to miss this deadline, you're going to then have to stump up the actual stump duty that you hadn't really factored in. Not what you need. Uh, why is it 
that's HSBC. And it's not alone, is it? Lots no. of mortgage lenders insist on these pencils. Why do they insist that you can only use this small number of lawyers? They say they actually argue it's for the benefit of the customer and themselves. Basically, um, there has been a rise in mortgage fraud, um, often committed by conveyancing firms. Um, the FSA itself, in its um, various fraud thematic reviews that it's done over the past few years, has even accentuated, basically emphasised to lenders that they really need to be um, in control of their third party um, services. So they need to know what's happening. And they pinpoint as conveyances as one of the areas of concern uh, where fraud is happening. So this is why a lot of lenders are clamping down. We've had a lot of the big lenders last year cut down um, their panel and basically really sort of stipulate which which um, solicitors they are happy to work with because they obviously feel that they have a bit more control over the situation then and know what's going on. And just finally, for you, the the, the, the poor buyer in, in this, what can you do? Nothing but appoint your own solicitor to try and chase them up? Yeah, I mean, they obviously say that if you have appointed your own solicitor, you can only really use them to kind of um, converse with HSBC and the appointed solicitor. I mean, the other route would be actually just to go through um, one of HSBC's appointed solicitors for the whole thing. I mean, you mentioned earlier that they do say the benefit is um, you basically, if uh, sell force through, you won't be charging the legal fees that you've already incurred. Um, I mean, maybe there's, it takes away for the third party thing, but, you know, there should still be that choice so that people can actually choose what sister they want to, you know, work with. Yes, and who's earning all the fees while all this uh, hassle is uh, endured, I wonder. Tanya, thank you very much indeed. And for more on this problem and uh, what HSBC has to say about it, have a read of Tanya's article in your weekend FT. That's all we have time for in this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you'll find all of these stories, plus daily news updates, blog posts and top tips on our website, ft.com forward slash money. You can follow our tweets at twitter.com forward slash FT money. And if you have a question that you'd like us to answer about any aspect of your finances, you just have to email us. The address is ask at ft.com. Next week, we'll be back with another financial lowdown in downloadable form. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Elaine, Tanya and our special guest, Mike Lenoff of Bruin Dolphin. Goodbye. 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 This is the Financial Times podcast in association with City Index. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.